Good afternoon and welcome to LLC Chat, the Language Learning Center's podcast on issues related to world languages and cultures from the perspective of students, faculty, and community members. It is my distinct pleasure to kick off our new series, ODU Faculty Speak World Languages. I'm your host, Alexis Osipov, and we come to you from the Department of World Languages and Cultures at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. ODU attracts the best and brightest scholars from around the world. Their contributions as leading educators and researchers make our community increasingly globalized. They are key in preparing our students with new perspectives. ODU provides a diverse and welcoming community where we learn from different backgrounds, cultures, and experiences. Faculty are helping to make ODU a world-class institution of higher education, and we want to get to know them better. We are joined today by our special guest, Dr. Laura Delbrug, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters. She earned her bachelor's degree in Spanish from Central College in Iowa and her master's degree and doctorate in Spanish from the Pennsylvania State University. Her primary research focuses on Spanish medieval literature and includes three scholarly editions of works first published by Andreas de Lee between 1492 and 1494 and a scholarly edition of the Gamaliel. Dean Delbrug has demonstrated her commitment to expanding student opportunity, success, and affordability. She makes advocacy for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and support for all students her priorities. We welcome Dean Delbrug to Old Dominion University and to the LLC Chat Podcast. It's an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Would you please introduce yourself with a brief background to where you are from, what is your specialty or discipline, and what are your interests? Oh, wow, that's a big question. So um, I'm from Iowa originally. That's where I grew up and did my undergraduate work at Central College in Pella, Iowa. And I went to Central because they had great academics, but they also had great study abroad programs. And I know we're gonna talk about that a little bit later, but that was why I went there And from that small liberal arts college, I went to Penn State main campus to do my graduate work, master's PhD in Pennsylvania, of course. And that was a big switch, but it was at Penn State that I learned that I was really interested in pursuing my Spanish studies, especially in medieval literature. Um, It's a pretty small field, which means I know most of the people in it, which is really great. That's why I keep getting excited about publishing in that area. Um, but I've been, I was in Pennsylvania the whole time uh, until, until I came to Old Dominion. I was at two different institutions. First, um, Indiana University of Pennsylvania as a Spanish professor. And then I also did administrative work in the Dean's office and Provost's office. And from there, I went to Clarion University as Dean of Arts and Sciences, but that merged into Penn West University my last day there was their first day as an institution, merged institution. So that was the merger of California, Edinburgh, and Clarion, Universities of Pennsylvania. And then I started here at Old Dominion 
Wow, wonderful. And congratulations now on your um, position as the Dean of College of Arts and Sciences. Arts and Letters, but you are correct. (laughs) I do it all the time because I was Arts and Sciences and Arts and Humanities at the same time. I had two jobs at the same time. And then now I'm Arts and Letters. Every time I have to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us how you acquired your Spanish language skills and what inspired you or motivated you to pursue a doctorate in Spanish? I started out taking Spanish because I it was offered at the same time as choir and I was sick of choir. This was in high school. It's a true story. So I did four years in high school. I didn't learn a whole lot, to be honest, but then I went to my undergraduate work uh, and did Spanish at Central as a major. What really got me into it, though, was the first study abroad I did as a freshman, and that got me got me to realize just how much language tells you about somebody, like about a culture or about a group of people. Language is is just fundamental, and we don't realize it, the subtleties and and the priorities that come out through language choices, lexicon, vocabulary, how you say it, when you say it. Did anything inspire you or? Oh, oh, yes, inspired me. Sorry, but yes, actually, I had an undergraduate professor at Central, um, Dr. Schreier, and he got me interested in doing specifically the civilization side of the research. So the history side, which has always fascinated me. And then how the history came into the literature in Spain is, is where I went with my graduate work. So he got me interested in, in just how those connections there. And then when I went to graduate school, um, I had a really, really strong mentor who tied all of these things together for me. And she was, she was great, Donna Rogers. She just retired. Very, very happy for her. So that's wonderful. Um, did so you spoke of studying abroad. Where where did you study abroad? My first study abroad experience, I was 19. I went to Mexico, Yucatan, in Merida in, in Yucatan, and I was there for three months. Learned a lot about life in those three months. And that was my roommate and I, who was also a Spanish major, we said, why don't we go to Mexico in the spring? Okay. And so you could do that. And we did 10 weeks there because we had trimesters. And when I was um, a junior, then we did the Spanish program. So we were in Spain in Granada for six months. And that was phenomenal. And as a graduate student at Penn State, I I was one of the on-site leaders for the Penn, Penn State study abroad program in Salamanca. So that was another six months. So all in all, it was a year and a half of study abroad, if you will. Wow, that's incredible. What was it like being so immersed in the culture and language? It's the only way to really get it. Um, I made a lot of friends from other countries. That was fantastic. The only da- danger was that you would speak English, like trying to learn Spanish. But when you found like folks who were also trying to learn Spanish and just needed that moment to speak English, you'd sometimes find yourself reverting back. But I made a lot of friends from all over the world, all of whom were trying to, to better their Spanish. And that was phenomenal. It was also an eye-opening experience to come to Iowa small, small town, there were a hundred people in the town where I, I spent my early childhood. And then where I grew up was Sheldon, Iowa, 
think it might have been five thousand. So it was a small it was a small place, and going to live not just in another town but in a city in Granada, in another country, and this was before the internet, which you won't remember. And so it was harder to call home. We used I used to go to the payphones and I would call my mother and it would connect and make a clicking sound and then shut off because I hadn't put any money in. And then I'd run back home to the family's house where I was staying and my mom would wait 15 minutes and then call me because I couldn't call out on the family's phone because it, was, it wasn't equipped to call internationally. So that was... That was how we communicated and we wrote letters. And <laughs> I know it sounds really quaint right now, but all of these things taught me how to be on my own and taught me how to think for myself and to act in ways that were culturally appropriate for where I was. And that took adjustment. Wow, that's amazing. That's that's a funny anecdote about calling your mom. <laughs> Happened all the time. And when I when I was in Spain. They actually had a hurricane. My parents moved um, to North Carolina when I was in college. So while I was in Mexico, they found out they were moving to North Carolina. And then when I was in Spain, they had already moved to North Carolina and there was a hurricane. And so I was trying to call back because it was their first hurricane, right? That was, yeah, couldn't get through because the weather was bad a long time ago. That's really scary. <laughs> so with this kind of intersection between your interests of like history it sounds like and um also learning spanish has learning a another language supported your research or any scholar initiatives it's all my research so the research i do is in spanish editions specifically the first three editions i produced were of an, a writer andres de Lee. And he published three books, 1493, 94, and 95, three books, right in succession. And that was a very interesting time to be in Spain. Um, there was religious persecution. You had Columbus leaving for the New World. It, it's a rich cultural time. And the thing that fascinated me about the text, which obviously were written in Spanish, and actually it came from Catalan sources. So I had that connection to another language, Catalan, which I had to learn how to read. I can speak a little, but not nearly what I could read in Catalan. Um, that was the, the opening, right? So those were the first three editions that I did. And an edition is an important um, contribution to the field because you're making text that had not been available before, unless you went to the dusty libraries in Spain, you know, or monasteries for a modern audience, right? So you, you produce the edition, which takes whole lot of work deciding what you are going to use for your criteria, right? How do I deal with this kind of word when I create the modernized edition? Do I even modernize the text or do I keep the old spelling, which is very, very different often? Those decisions are important and lead to creating an introduction for the editions that contextualize the text. So like you wouldn't buy Shakespeare written on the original parchment, right? They're, they're valuable. They don't just blend those out. So that's, but you, you buy editions, right? So when you take your classes and they have the intro material that helps you understand what you're reading. That's what I did for all three of the works of Andres de Lee. I call it my trilogy, the Lee trilogy, right? Um, after that, I did an entirely different book. And this is where language really comes into play because I was the editor. 
for a volume on self-fashioning, which is a Renaissance concept from England. Stephen Greenblatt had this concept that he examined Renaissance England about. So 10 contributors wrote chapters for this book on how self-fashioning, in our opinion, was something that's always there. Humans are always trying to, people are always trying to make their um, personalities or their persona, their public persona, actually what they want others to see, right? right? So we looked at that concept over, a, I think it was about a 500 year span in texts from France and Aragon and Castilla and all over. And so I had to, I had to edit sometimes in six languages. I don't speak six languages. So if the, the texts were all written in English, but the footnotes could be, you know, from other languages and other sources, and we had to include translations and everything. And that was probably my, my favorite production, my favorite work. First of all, it wasn't me. It was me taking everyone else's work and bringing it to the forefront, including graduate students. I had really big name scholars plus graduate students in that same book. And it, it gets cited quite often. And it was, it was an honor to do. But I had to at least have a clue how all these languages developed, right? Or I wouldn't have been able to do the edition. The last book I did was another edition of an entirely different text, a little modern for me. It was 1525. So I was getting into the Renaissance. That one was fun too because it had never been edited before. It was an anonymous text. Um, so that was fun. That's amazing. It's so interesting to hear kind of like a collection that involves so many different languages, which also implies so many different like backgrounds and things like that. But the concept applied across all of them. Mm -hmm. That's what was fascinating. That's amazing. And has, obviously, knowing Spanish, has that helped kind of with your increasing the audience for your publications and things like that? I would, I, I think so. I mean, if I couldn't read Spanish, I couldn't have done the edition, right? So I, I that's fundamental. And if I didn't have Catalan, or at least some knowledge of it, I really couldn't have understood a couple of the, the works that I did with Lee, because I'm pretty sure he was Catalan. And he wrote first in that language and translated. That's amazing. How important is it to know another world language as your role as a dean? I think it's super important. Um, having studied language is one thing. Having studied culture is another. Appreciating what it feels like to be somewhere you don't know the rules, where you, you have to learn everything by putting yourself out there and trying. Those were skills I learned trying to acquire a language. So it, it got me a heck of a lot more than just being able to speak Spanish, which is really important. I've, I've used it. It's a, it's a skill folks don't always expect you to have to be able to speak in another language. So that's that helps me reach another group of people, right, who may not be able to communicate as well in English as they'd like. So I have another way to reach them. I think it's just a good example for you study language you can end up doing anything, anything. I have a lot of colleagues who are medievalists, including the new associate dean, who is a Spanish medievalist, believe it or not, who are in administrative positions. That's incredible. That's wonderful. <laughs> what advice would you offer our current ODU students studying world languages and cultures? Keep studying. Speak as much as humanly possible and try to study abroad. And 
study abroad is a looser term. Go to another country if you can, absolutely. But there are also pockets here in Virginia and in Norfolk where you can speak Spanish exclusively as well. And that, that is a great way to get, to get started. Try for that experiential learning. Get out there and do. And it's hard. And if you can't get out there, then use technology to make those opportunities available. You can do Zoom with people across the world. They do it all the time. And that's it's one positive thing that probably has come out of the pandemic is we now know Zoom is a tool to make some things easier like this interview. Yes, most definitely. <laughs> and what does it mean to, for you personally to be multilingual? It's usually a bit of a surprise. Um, to me, how much more I, I see about my own world just by having studied somebody else's experiences. And it's it's odd too, because my field is, you know, I study things 500 years old, but because I can read that Spanish, I could read the part of the old text from 1495 where the printer wrote, yeah, well, we had to fix this book because they forgot to put in the months of November and December in the last edition. So we fixed that now. And to see that people are people are people, right? That was that was a, a very small example, but a really neat experience that I did have when I did my first book. Yeah, I could I wouldn't have had that experience if I weren't in the Biblioteca Nacional in Madrid, looking at this text that no one else had looked at. So it's nice to be able to contribute to the field, but also the Spanish I use is not stuck in the Middle Ages, right? It's it's I can use it every day. Just out of curiosity, have you seen through reading these old texts and now obviously languages evolve and things like that, have you seen like how Spanish has evolved? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It, there's a lot of language change that took place right at that time, actually. And then the interesting bits is how the language that made it to the Americas is a certain type of Spanish because many of the sailors came through the same port. So it's interesting that some of the features in, in some of the Americas really are different than Castellano, which is spoken in Spain. So, and that came from the, the patterns that people migrated with. And also, as I said, the sailors who came over, a lot of them came through Andalusia, so they had that dialect. And that's what developed. So vosotros in Spain, but ustedes in the new world, those were, those were Choices that got made, you know, not by committee or anything, but things that happened over the evolution of language. Fascinating. There are things you can say in Spain that you can't say in Mexico and vice versa, because they mean different things entirely. Yes, that's really interesting. And it's, it's nice to kind of see how, like you said, with that small example about them making the adjustment to the next mm -hmm. edition, seeing how, um, how longstanding these things are and how these things are even seen today, you know, people are people, like you said. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know? Um, just that I'm really happy to be at ODU. It's a wonderful place. I, I see it as a very exciting time in the institution's, you know, trajectory, um, lots of good things happening. And I look forward to meeting everyone out there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Once again, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it.
Hello, listeners. I wanted to give a special thanks to Kishibashi for allowing us to play his song, Marigolds, in our podcast. Check him out on your preferred music listening platform. I also want to thank each of you, our listeners, for tuning into our podcast and for showing an interest in world languages and cultures. Happy listening!